0: back. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Amen. Uh, I cannot thank each of you enough for all of your prayers and all of your support uh, during my weight loss program. <clears throat> um, yeah, it was, it was powerful. I guess God uh, wanted to give me a time where I could be ministered to, and I, I have to say that the way that you have ministered to me, I could never repay. Um, and so the ministry of the people of this church is so incredibly powerful. I don't think that we could possibly send out enough cards or say thank you enough for all the, the you know, people showing up with food and just prayers, people coming outside of our house looking at me all haggard and oxygen and everything, singing Christmas carols, um, you know. Um, and just uh, just everything, I, I do want to give a special thanks really to um, the Idlewild Fire Department and Mark Lamont. Um, my experiences going down, men. My experiences going down to the hospital, down to the emergency room, were absolutely horrible. Um, they were not good, and I told Denise, I'm not going back. Um, and I don't know if I was just being stubborn or or what, but I was so miserable that I just could. Mark came in, and the fire department came in and basically turned our bedroom into a hospital room. So the love that we've experienced from this from this family is just astounding. And I thank you. And I, I, on that note, <laughs> um, I was going to mention this song that Clint just played. That's a song that that uh, I had to sing to myself and preach to myself over and over again when we lost our daughter Caroline. And uh, it's a powerful song. And that was an experience. You know, I mean, uh, Denise and I never got to, got to hold our, our daughter Caroline. One day I will. <laughs> but that song is just such a powerful, has such a powerful message. And we're going to talk today about a storm. Um, and uh, this is a storm that pretty much Jonah brought on himself. So if you would turn to Jonah chapter one, and uh, we're going to start, we kind of hopscotched around because Jonah three, we had to use Jonah three for the baptism last week, right? I mean, was that just the perfect text for that um, for that context? It was, it was great. But uh, now we're back. We I started out before I. Started my wet last program. Um, I started out with uh, the first three verses of Jonah, and then um, I had a message prepared and was never able to preach it. So I've redone the outline and we're uh, doing it a little bit differently, but um, we'll spend the next few weeks looking at the life of Jonah. I think it's going to be every bit as powerful just seeing uh, God's mercy working in the midst of his unfaithfulness. And so I think it's I hope it will be a powerful thing. Then we're going to go into Luke, and I'm really excited about Luke because not only does Luke give us a just an awesome history of really the beginnings of the Christian faith from the birth birth of Jesus as a as a Jew in the area of Israel, but um, but all the way on up into the early church uh, and. Knowing that it is one of the most important historical manuscripts ever of anything, uh, Luke and Acts are. Uh, historians um, all over the world evaluate and admire that work, and so and we have it in our scriptures. And so, <coughs> so excuse me. Um, so anyhow, uh, let us go ahead and read out of Jonah. The God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and, they, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. That uh, what is your op- occupation, and where did you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told him. He told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. And I know it is because of me, for I know it was because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men of the rode hard uh, to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him in the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Oh, our Heavenly Father, we are creatures made in your image, but corrupted by our own sin. We're prone to pride and rebellion. We will so often go to great lengths to flee your perfect will because our wills seem right to us. We thank you that though it may be painful, you sovereignly overcome our sin with your great mercy. So we humbly now submit our hearts, our minds to you. We give our attention to you, our good God, as we open your holy scriptures this morning to learn from you. To know you more through the, that which you've given us to know you by. Your holy word. We give this time over to you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. I love toddlers. Do you love toddlers? I, I lo- I'm terrified of them, but I, I also love them because they have a complete lack of a clue whatsoever. Dinosaurs still roam the earth, there are monsters living in the walls. For me, it was the geese that lived in the walls that would come out to bite me, Um, and their leader was Big Bird. Have you seen that terrifying beak? Now, I mentioned in first service that part of what is so terrifying about Big Bird is that I don't even know what gender Big Bird is or what pronoun to use, and (laughs) I was corrected uh, evidently, Big Bird, I was corrected by my wife, uh, evidently Big Bird is male. Never knew that. I don't know if that makes him any less terrifying. Big Bird's a terrifying creature. Have you seen the size of that beak? Have you ever been b- bitten by a goose? That is one big goose, right? The logic of a toddler is completely distorted by a complete lack of real information, when you were a kid, did you ever try digging a hole to China because you might be able to do that? Right? Yeah, I see it. Clint did. Tried it a few times. I bet. I think he tried it. He borrowed a tractor one time recently to do it. No. My kids, one of them was more interested in floor food than the dog was and ate dead flies out of the windowsill as if we didn't give her enough food. Right? Another one, and this is my favorite. He loved soda. He loved soda so much that he would wait for people, he was very stealthily like this, he would wait for people to look the other way and then quickly hijack their Coke. Well, it happened that he was in the backyard where a good friend of mine, a chronic chain smoker, happened to have left his can of soda. You know where this is going, right? Almost in tears he comes to me, Daddy, I just drank that Coke and it tasted terrible. So I quoted a verse that we looked at last week. Behold, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. (laughs) Serves you right, kid. He just gave me this blank stares if he didn't understand natural consequences and couldn't figure out why this horrible situation made his dad laugh so much. But here's the thing. I never caught him stealing soda again. That's right. And I, I stole this from Jimmy Gaffigan, I think. It's um, to a paraphrase. Toddlers try to run as if they thought it through, right? You notice that? Have you ever seen a toddler go for the front door? Like, it's like, what's your plan? You can't reach the doorknob. You have no money. You don't have an ID. You can't drive. You only know us. And finally, you're not actually going to get away. It's not like the bigger, faster, stronger parent is going to just give up. Like, well, he was running. What was I going to do? Walk faster? Like, we don't. You ever try to reason with a toddler? Try using adult reasoning with a three- or four-year-old. Right. No, you cannot ride your tricycle down the stairs because you're going to get hurt. And they just bankly, blankly stare at you, or, or they come up with a bulletproof argument that they have really thought through, and it goes something like this. No, I won't. <laughs> Let's move on to hashtags. You, you know what a hashtag is, right? Does everybody know a Hashtag. We used to call it the pound sign or the tic-tac-toe symbol. Now it follows a statement and gives a description. So if you're on the internet, you just click on the little hashtag that somebody put in there, and you can find every other statement that uses that hashtag. So, for example, hashtag Great time at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Hashtag Giampa family vacation, right? Or hashtag Or, or just bit into a frozen pickle. Hashtag Fail, right? Or just got a big package from Amazon today. This has probably been on my Facebook page a million times. Hashtag books, right? I love it. Here's one. Is there anything more sublime than a good old-fashioned American barbecue dinner? Nothing fancy, just hashtag #HashtagFreedom hashtag freedom, hashtag. Now, this one. If I had a million dollars, I wouldn't waste it on candy. I'd spend it on something wise, like soda. Hashtag Giampa Kids, hashtag Giampa Kid number three, the whole thing, right? Okay, here's, here's, an, here's another one. Oh, no. <laughs> Arrested by my own friend. Can you believe it? Hashtag busted, right? I won't tell you what they charged me with. Okay, I will. It was malarkey. That was what, it, I'm just kidding. That was fun. That was in an event that we did when I was a police chaplain in New York. I loved it. Good people. How about, I have one here for Jonah. Gee, I didn't see that coming. Hashtag things God never said, right? We're all a bunch of toddlers, aren't we? We're a bunch of toddlers. Jonah was the king toddler, right? Jonah tried to flee. God's faster, right? Didn't take God by surprise. God had no interest in giving up on Jonah. The only real response from God was to make Jonah do what he had predetermined he would have him do. Jonah just made it harder on himself. Any of us ever do that? Like, right? God doesn't respond to Jonah by changing his plans, but with judgment of Jonah, whom he will ensure, responds to his plan. You ever tried to run from God? He's bigger, he's faster, he's stronger. You can't reach the doorknob. What's your plan? God's ultimately going to have his way, isn't he? We also have an enemy that wants God to fail, though. And I I don't think this enemy is deluded enough to think he will actually succeed, but he sure can make our lives miserable by leading us into rebellion, can't he? If you intend to flee from God, there's an evil one who will help to provide the means for you to do so. Just like Jonah, there was a ship sailing west. What luck, right? This is how Richard Phillips put it. There's... There's an important lesson for all of us in this. If we have been toying with, with sin, with a sin, and find that opportunity presents itself, we should not see the hand of good fortune, but of Satan. It is not difficult, after all, for the devil to arrange opportunities for sin. Perhaps you have allowed yourself to indulge in the thoughts of a sexual affair. You should not then be surprised when an opportunity for adultery presents itself. This should raise your suspicions and lead you to repentance. Perhaps you have cheated on your taxes and have not been caught or indulged in pornography and no one has found out. This should alarm you as to what sins you might be led to commit and quickly bring you to your knees before the Lord. See, God will often, when we're in that place, bring a storm to alarm us, to force us to bend to His will. He's going to have His way with us. So Jonah 1.4, verse 4, it says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Notice that God sends a great wind. It's not the first time He did that, right? He did the same thing with Egypt. The wind brought the locusts, and then it, it blew the sea open for Moses and the Israelites, and then the wind closed up the sea on the Egyptian army. Paul, Paul was carried through storms and shipwrecks, and Jesus, he was in, in, a, in a storm, right? Caught in a storm, stopped it with the sound of his voice: "Peace, be still!" And it just stopped. That would be—that's a cool trick. I'd love to see that that in play. Um, but he did. It says this in Mark four, Mark chapter four. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, "Let us go across to the other side." And leaving the crowd, they took him with. Them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. They woke him and said to him, "Teacher, do you do you not care that we're perishing?" He awoke and he rebuked the wind and sea, "Peace, be still." And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. You see, God has that power. God's in control. You know, in any time you're at sea, just the natural forces, there's always a threat, isn't there? Be it storms, be it other ships, be it fog, be it pirates from Crete. There we go. That's what I was looking for. When you're a sailor, you're prepared for the threats, and you know how to get out of precarious situations. Like, the, well, okay. Maybe. Or I guess, I, I mean, there's another one here, I think. Yeah, that might not be a good situation to be in right there. Or, you know, this most I guess most sailors can get out of a precarious situation. Um, well, except this sailor. He didn't know how. Um, and this next one, I don't even know how that happens. Like what was it, he was, leave that up there, leave that on there for a minute. Look at that, look at, wait, is that Bill's truck? No, what are you, was he trying to back up and he couldn't get the trailer, the trailer kept going the other way so I would try this, thought I would try this method. I, all I know is somebody needs to find an indoor hobby. That's, have you ever heard that the, a bad day fishing is better than a good day at work? Not for that guy. No, he's not thinking that at all. This one, that's, do you remember that? That was fodder for so many great, it blocked the whole canal. So many great jokes came from that one, like, let's dig it up with a tractor, like. <laughs> yeah, right? And of course, we can't leave this one out. There are some things that you just can't plan for. Only one solution, you're going to need a bigger boat, right? Oh, man. Okay, so there are exceptions. But if you're a seasoned sailor, a normal storm is nothing to you and you're able to navigate a vessel effortlessly under all but the most unusually dangerous conditions, unless you're in the Suez Canal. Evidently, that one's not for the freshman class. Maybe Jonah maybe Jonah picked the ship with really bad sailors. But I'm going I'm to guess that's not the case. I think I'm going with an exceptionally treacherous storm since God tends to make himself known in some pretty profound ways when we're running from him. I like what Kevin Youngblood said. He said, creation's conspiracy against Jonah fills this episode with irony. Jonah had attempted to escape his prophetic task by means of wind, sea, and ship. But rather than cooperate with Jonah, these elements obediently conspire with Yahweh to oppose Jonah that's not a good place to be, you know? Verse five, verse five of Jonah one. Then the mariners were afraid, rightly so, right? And each cried out to his God. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Now the sailors here are unwitting recipients of God's judgment on Jonah. God uses the threat of this ship breaking up to shake them up and expose jonah 's sin, now the sailors were probably a mixed bunch of people from all over, but even if they were from around the same area, the prevailing theology everywhere revolved around clans and tribes and gods that would be gods of these clans and tribes in different areas so i, I don 't know if we fix this i 'm sorry that's, that's the, the, the first definition is bad. Polytheism is not a commentary on ancient scripture. Uh, I don't know how I got that in there, but uh, I make mistakes too. I know. I know you (laughs) thought I was perfect, right? Um, Polytheism means many gods, right? Many gods. Syncretism is the fusion of differing beliefs. So these sailors would have embraced both of those ideas. It would... It would see different religions' uh, syncretism as not having conflicting gods, but gods who either complement one another or as different perspectives, kind of on the same thing. Um, How we might kind of express that today would be that all religions are equally valid as long as you're sincere and you give the respect of validating other belief systems, and that is entirely contradictory to Scripture. This is what Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, God uses the, these false beliefs of these sailors to expose Jonah and consequently to reveal his own sovereign power. I, I hit some pretty quotable material this week. Here's what James Montgomery Boyce said. To put it in theological language... God had elected Jonah to a special task that he had determined and had determined that the task would be accomplished. God took his election of Jonah so seriously that he would actually sink the ship on which the diso- disobedient prophet was sailing, if necessary, rather then allow him to get to his destination. So here's the context. All these sailors are crying out to their various gods. They've been yeeting the cargo out of the ship because things are going badly and the ship's going to break up. And I want to give you a freebie here. The definition of the word yeet, it's what all the cool teens use, right? It's like an aggressive throw. So now that you know that, you can be cool too. That one's free. You got to give a freebie every now and then. Yeet. That's a great word. It's kind of funny too. So anyhow, up and down, the sailors climb the decks to grab more and more cargo. They're yeeting it. They're launching it out of the boat. It's getting more and more expensive to do this. And lo and behold, what do they find? One more dude and he hasn't prayed. Instead, he's sleeping, busted, right? In their minds, especially after the the casting of lots, this guy is responsible and his God must be pretty upset. They were better theologians than, the, than Jonah was at this point. So the captain's called, he goes down to sea. this is what it says in verse six. The captain came and said to him, "What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise! Call out to your God. Perhaps God will give a thought to us that we may not perish." It starts out with Jonah out cold, right? And John Golding has suggested that perhaps falling asleep was a way of avoiding reality. Bad things happen when you try to sleep off God, God's mission. You ever done this where like you have like a whole to-do list and it's just you don't know where to start so you take a nap? Yeah, <laughs> right? Samson, Samson was betrayed while he was sleeping, right? Remember Samson? Judges 16. Speaking of Delilah, starting in verse 19. She made him sleep on her knees and she called, <clears throat> called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Now imagine, this is the dude with the really long dreadlocks, right? That, that he, was a, he, he had a vow with God, and he, he was going, had this great strength, and he could do all these supernatural things and rip apart phone books and stuff. And he had these dreadlocks, right? And that, there's only seven of them. Can you imagine how nasty his hair must have been? So here's, here, here's Samson with all the strength, Shaves off the the seven locks of his head, the men did, and she, Delilah, began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord God had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he grounded the mill. In prison. I don't think any of us had ever have ever regretted a nap that much. What happened here in the parable of the ten virgins? You had three, or you had five of them that were that were ready, so they went to sleep. Other five were not ready, and they slept. What what happens? The king of heaven will be like the ten virgins. This is Matthew 25, by the way, starting in verse 1. The kingdom of heaven will be like the ten virgins The wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. They were not ready and instead they slept. This is a parable relating to eschatology. If we are to sleep in the metaphorical sense, we are not ready for our Lord's return. We're not doing the work that God has called us to. And then just one chapter later, this is a big one. We tend to be real critical of the disciples, but please, but by the grace of God, are any of us any better, right? Here's what happens, Matthew 26, 38. Jesus finds his disciples asleep. So, so before that happens, he says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So see, he's getting ready to be crucified on the cross, right? And <clears throat> he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, it will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners." And they were sleeping. Keep in mind, the kind of sleep that we see Jonah in has this indication of it's like the same kind of sleep that God had put Adam in to remove a rib. Because having a rib removed while you're awake hurts a little bit. Uh, He was out cold. Most people pass this off as Jonah just not caring. One suggestion is that he was in... This was just a deep depression he was in. And and I think that that one has teeth because I think the narrative offers evidence that Jonah was so depressed at this point that he was suicidal. We'll get there. I mean, what could have he told? He could have told them the only way to survive was to turn the ship around and go back to Joppa. And who knows? With him, he may may have been so drunk he just was passed out. We're, We're not told any of that. Let's go to verse 7 and unpack that a little bit. Jonah 1.7, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots. The lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, or Yahweh, because he had told them. That word Lord, when you see it in all capital letters in your Bible like that, it's, it's, it's the YHWH is, is where, what it is. It, it, identifies, it identifies it as the one true creator God of Israel. So when, Jesus, when Jonah said that he served Yahweh, it is then that the fear of the sailors is compounded. We often will see that, right? Do you remember, go back, remember Jericho, right? The, 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 the spies came in, they met uh, Rahab, and, 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 and they're all there, and, and the people in Jericho knew the stories, they knew how... Um, Israel had passed through the Red Sea. They knew how Israel had gone through the desert, won impossible battles. They knew all these stories. They had 40 years of warnings. So how likely is it that these sailors that on this boat with Jonah had heard the reputation of the Hebrew God? I think it's pretty likely. Remember the dominant belief that we just talked about that it is each clan or tribe would have its own God? And as you cross through their land, you would worship their God. So when these people realized that it was Jonah's God that was angry, at this point, they would have sought to appease him because Jonah's claim was this God is the universal creator of the universe, not just a local God. But it's possible that they're aware that, that uh, this Hebrew God was particularly active and powerful and reliable, whereas their own gods were somewhat dubious in their activities. Of course, we can testify that any God that isn't real is going to be a little unreliable when you pray, right? Verse 11, and they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Why didn't Jonah just tell him to take him back to Joppa? I mean, it would have done the trick. It would demonstrate a heart of repentance on Jonah's part, a a, a physical reversal of direction, right? One commentator suggested that Jonah knew the sailors would refuse to head back to Joppa without the cargo that had been loaded there. No, no, I don't think so. Uh, they would do whatever it was to appease whatever God was angry and save their lives at this point. Uh, it, and, and at least they would have saved the ship, right? At least the ship didn't, wouldn't have gone down. Even if they got fired, it's still better than drowning. Have you ever thought about that prospect? That does not sound like a great way to go. The same commentator assumes that Jonah's willing to die for the sake of these pagan sailors so that their boat doesn't break up. No, I don't think so. I I just, I have a hard time with that. Based on what we read about Jonah's attitude in chapter 4, I think that's a generous suggestion that he would die for them. No, uh, the captain was definitely in a bad spot, but Jonah's answer was along the same lines as suicide by cop. He would rather drown than go to Nineveh. I don't think Jonah was trying to be helpful. He was still running from God. Jump ahead to verse 13 here. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, to Yahweh, O Lord, or O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. These pagan sailors were more merciful than God's prophet Jonah. Jonah wouldn't even consider Bringing a potential of God's mercy to Nineveh. He couldn't stomach the idea of being part of God's grace towards these evil, wicked Assyrian Ninevites. He, in fact, he's just fine seeing at least 100,000 Ninevites die miserably under God's judgment. In fact, he's willing to die to prevent God's mercy to them. How hard is that heart? See, in contrast... Jonah asks to, be, asks to be yeeted himself, right? And they try to row ashore instead. They didn't honor his wishes at first. They worked to spare Jonah, who had just cost them all of their cargo, probably all of their pay, and likely their jobs. I wonder how often our unbelieving friends and family show more mercy than we do. Verse 5, they had each called out to their own gods. These are the sailors, right? In verse 6, they assumed that there must be a, a God who hadn't been petitioned and wanted the stranger to call out to this ambiguous God. And now they know who he is. They're calling out to Jonah's God, Yahweh, who is the one true God, the creator of all. Look how this works. Take careful notice. God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, where he would show the evil pagan Assyrians his mercy. So Jonah tries to run from God in a wooden boat, since that might work, right? And how does God respond? With yet more mercy. Now these pagan sailors are calling on the one true God. We don't know if any of them ever actually placed their trust in him forever, but it wouldn't be unreasonable to assume that. After all they had witnessed and experienced, they saw God work and they called out to him. And they experienced his mercy. Romans 5.20, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all that much more. Dear friends, do not ever let someone convince you that the God of the Old Testament is an angry and vengeful God. Yeah, he's just. And yes, his wrath is very real and terrifying in both the Old, New, New, Old and New Testaments. But as we sang last week, his mercy is more. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and, this, and the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. You see, tossing a dude to his death could be considered a pretty serious crime. Uh, what do they call it? Murder, I think, right? His family could seek justice, right? So they didn't take this lightly. Even as pagans, they didn't take it lightly. But to be sure, they sought Yahweh's mercy by offering a sacrifice. Now, it was perhaps a vow to sacrifice uh, that they would do on the shore once they got there because there was really nothing left on the ship, and it was unlikely that there would have been any animals on board one way or the other. So they sought God's mercy. Now, the next chapter, or the next verse, rather, in chapter 1 is verse 17. Not all Bibles put verse 17 in chapter 1. Some of them have that as the first verse of chapter 2. The ancient Hebrew Bible has, well, the ancient Bible doesn't have delineations, but the, the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Bibles that I have, have this verse as chapter 1 of, uh, or as verse 1 of chapter 2, which has 11 verses instead of 10 like in our Bibles. Also, the Septuagint, which is the Greek, ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, also has verse 17 as, cha- as verse one in chapter two. Um, and there are some obscure English translations that do. But guess what, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter because the chapter and verse delineations are, a, a, it's a recent development, human development. We don't have those in the early manuscripts, it's just one long-running narrative so we don't need to worry about that. But what that tells us, I think, is something important, is that all the scholars and translators, to them, verse 17 is kind of its own section. It's very important. Consequently, we often make the whole story of Jonah about that one verse. And admittedly, there is a lot to unpack. So let's read it, and then we're going to get there. Verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That word appointed is important. Nothing here happened by mere chance. S- some translations use the word provided. It could be translated that way, but I believe it's very misleading in this context because the word here used actually indicates a deliberate action. The fish, whale, shark, whatever it was, showed up by chance, nor did it, or or rather did not show up by chance, nor did it merely respond to God's request. God was the author and the cause of this action. The fish didn't have a choice in the matter. The fish didn't have any more choice than the weather did. Like God didn't say to the clouds like, hey, can you roll over there, bring some wind with you, whip up those waves and scare those sailors really bad. the, the, The weather's going to God like, I don't know, God. I'll give you a dollar. Like, that's not how it worked out. God commanded the storm, and it obeyed. He commands the winds and the waves. He commanded the fish, and it obeyed. And what this tells us is that God's mercy is intentional. God is unchanging and gives us a very clear picture of his his character. He is intentional with his mercy. Exodus 33:19. This is God speaking. He says, "I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, or Yahweh, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious." And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And then Paul quotes that same passage in Romans 9 for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God is intentional about his mercy. If God has mercy on you, it's not because you asked him right. It's not because we somehow deserved it. It's because God, out of his great love, and his sovereign ability willed to show you his mercy. It gives us no chance to take credit, but only to be thankful. This one verse is the verse that that has so many people dismissing the book of Jonah as mere legend. And rightfully so. There are some real scientific issues here. We don't know of any whale that has an esophagus large enough to swallow human except maybe a very large sperm whale, like the one on uh, in uh, Melville's Moby Dick. Uh, I tried reading that before I preached through Jonah. That's a long book. <laughs> it's, um, and the sperm whale is about one of the eight or ten species of whales found in the Mediterranean. But even at that there just wouldn't be enough oxygen in any of its four stomachs for a person to breathe. Well, there are at least 45 different species of sharks in the Mediterranean, and they've attacked some 31 people that we know of in the last couple hundred years. The basking shark has has a very large mouth, but that still doesn't solve the oxygen problem. And then we also have countless extinct sea animals as well. Recently, a lobster diver was sucked up by a humpback whale he wasn't fully swallowed because the esophagus was too small but he was in there for about 30 seconds there's a falkland fisherman who claims to have been swallowed by a sperm whale but his story is widely disputed there have been a few and stories of people swallowed and you know claiming to have their their skin bleached from the stomach acids or whatever it might be and some of those are you know those have all been somewhat disputed There's also a question over the nature of the miracle. Did Jonah survive those three days and three nights in the belly of this ambiguous sea animal? Or did he die and then was revived upon being vomited up on the shore? Here's the thing. None of it matters. None of that matters. Because if you dismiss that miracle, you're going to dis- you may as well dismiss all the other miracles in the Bible. It was a miracle one way or the other, right? It's a miracle that really happened in history. Jesus didn't dismiss the historicity of this and neither should we. It happened. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 12, 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It really happened. Now let's kind of close this out. It's tempting to take this as a story about sleeping off our Christian duty. Richard Phillips identified four marks of a sleeping church. He says the the sleeping church is unaware of its condition. It it doesn't know it's asleep. He also said in their dreams, sleepers often do things that they would never do when they're awake. Sleeping churches are out of step with biblical ecclesiology. Here's one. Sleepers dislike alarm. I had a problem with this. When we first got married, I didn't know I did this. I didn't know that I was like this. I would be sleeping. and Evidently, Denise would try to wake me up, and I would wake up throwing punches. I didn't know I was doing it, so she got smart. Now she uses a stick. And so <laughs> hashtag wisdom. Sleepers tend to get angry with those who try to awaken them, like the prophets who were stoned in ancient Israel. A sleeper neither prays nor preaches the word of God. Philip suggested the lack of prayer is a sign of sleeping. Do we struggle with a lack of prayer? We must be careful not to understand Jonah's sleeping as a dereliction of duty. It should not be reduced to that he had already been derelict. It has little to do with that really Jonah had already run from God. This is not so much as looking at the world around us and finding a divine task instead of taking a nap. That's not what it's about. It's not about contending for biblical justice and for the lives of the unborn. Yes, we should do all of those things. But what we demonstrate, what we've demonstrated very clearly, especially in this time of COVID, is that we don't sleep in the face of the sins of others. We fight, right? We fight. We don't sleep. We don't sleep in the face of the sins of others. We sleep in the face of our own sin. Because it's much easier to deal with that way. When someone approaches us and asks us for prayer, are we caught off guard? Are we embarrassed to pray to our everlasting Creator? Is there something keeping us from talking to God? Maybe we've been sleeping. And what, it would say, what, what the Lord would say is, Awake, O sleeper, talk to your God. Ephesians 5, 6-14. through 14. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of those things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were in darkness... for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Jesus can calm the storm. Jesus can conquer our sin and replace God's wrath with his mercy. Wake up. Call out to your God because He is merciful God and He will grant you repentance and lead you into the hope of His glory and grace for you and for those around you. You know, if we're honest with ourselves, we will recognize how often and how miserably we fail. But if we're honest with God's word, we will recognize how merciful God is and how often He expresses that mercy. Very fact that I'm standing here is a function of God's mercy. Jonah recognizes this in chapter four. And I don't I don't know how you say this angrily, but that's what Jonah did. He said this angrily. He said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was Yet in my country, that's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Imagine saying that angrily. That like, just demonstrates the hardness of his heart. Let us not be there. I think the call for us this morning as we, as we move into a time of communing with God comes out of Joel chapter 2 verses 12 and 13 Even yet even now declares the Lord return to me with all your heart with fasting with weeping and with mourning and rend your hearts and not your garments return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and he relents over disaster as we come to the Lord's table and we prepare to receive His sacred supper, I want us to take some time to reflect on God's mercy in light of our rebellion. I would like each of us to consider where it is we may need to repent. For some of us, repentance may mean, we, may, may mean that we need to make something right with somebody and Clint and the team are going to play a song and, and they're going to give us time to make our hearts right. Of course we can't, only God can, but we can pray. And for some of us, we might even pull our phone out and send a simple text. I'm sorry I hurt you, please forgive me. Or maybe something like, I'm ready to make things right with you, when can we talk? And then when we're ready, I'm going to share some scripture and we're going to partake of the bread and of the cup together. So, as we prepare our hearts, let us pray. O oh, holy God, let us not be like Jonah, fleeing from your mission, fleeing from your word, fleeing from your presence. Conquer our rebellious hearts and make us like Jesus. Lord, cause us to receive your loving discipline and follow you with right hearts and obedient attitudes. Give us your heart that we may serve you with great joy. Holy God, let us see your great love for each of us and may that humble us to love and to serve even the most difficult people. God, help us to love those around us the way that you love them and to be grateful for your great mercy that overcomes sin and corruption. And so we ask, O oh Lord, speak to us as we prepare to receive this bread and this cup. You have given mercy that we may be people of mercy. And it is grace and mercy by which the blood of Jesus' broken body flowed down that painful, that rugged, that beautiful cross. Lord, humble us as we prepare to receive this holy meal. In the name of our Savior, Jesus.
1: Come, O sinner, come and see Christ the Lord upon a tree See the crown of thorns adorn the key Who labors to breathe in sinner, come and see What our God became to set us free Come, O oh sinner, come and mourn For he calls your sin his own Do you feel the weight of justice, sir? He suffers the wrath that you deserve. Come, O sinner, come and mourn, for He bears the curse for all you've done. Oh, the wonder of this awesome scene. Where our Savior bleeds Oh, the power Of the love of God Come and stand in awe Come, O sinner, come rejoice Mercy fills this place of scorn For he dies to save his enemies That all who draw near may know his peace Come, O sinner, come, rejoice Through the death of Christ, death is destroyed Oh, the one Of this awesome scene Where our Savior bleeds Oh, the power Of the love of God Come and stand in awe If
0: you take your cups Yeah top here kind of comes off. Make sure you get the bread one first there. The Apostle Paul said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Partake with me. careful with the grape juice part here I might go nice and slow Jesus is the one who is stained not our clothes he took that upon himself for us didn't he 1st Corinthians 11:25 Paul continues in the same way he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it In remembrance of me, let's receive together. And it continues, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Hallelujah. And we say, Come, Lord Jesus. We long to be in your holy presence to serve with humility and gratitude in your kingdom on your terms at whatever expense that may come to us forever. God, we give ourselves over to you as we enter our week and our mission field in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.